2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9, I'm reading from the King James, but please follow along in any whatever translation you are using. But here's what it says in my version. It says, even him whose coming is after the working of who? Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders. Today, my message is entitled, The Final Deception. Now, I'm going to give you a little reminder of something that we covered a few weeks ago. I shared with you that the early Christian church was told by Jesus, when you see this sign, it's time for you to flee. You remember that? And I think I shared with you that when I ran in track and field in middle school, it was the starter's gun that we all were waiting for. You know, you're in the blocks, and you're waiting, and everybody is just like, you know, you're, you're just excited, and then boom, you hear the gun, and then you just go. Well, in the Christian sense, in end-time events, that sign that Jesus gave was, he said, when you shall see this abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, then you know it's time to run. And I told you that in the, Roman, in, the, in the Roman invasion of Jerusalem, the general Cestius, he carried these standards. And that's common practice in the Roman military. As the army marched, they, they marched under this banner. And so when Cestius came, he brought this standard. It was an eagle that had in its talons some arrows, its head looked to the right, but it was considered a symbol for Mithra, the god of the sun. And as they approached and as they put this banner right outside the walls of the city, the Christians knew this is the sign. That idolatrous standard being planted right outside the city, that was the sign that the Christians had to be ready. And if you look at history, because Cestius made his invasion sometime around 66 uh, AD, something happened. He got called away. And so when he gets called away, the Christians knew this is, this is what Jesus meant. He wanted us to go. So they all fled. And then just a short time later, Titus came. He sieged the city. Almost, I, I should say, hundreds of thousands of people were killed. But not one Christian perished in that destruction. Now, in our modern times, that same story is the same concept that we understand in this modern age to be when the papacy will uphold the false Sabbath in place of God's true Sabbath. This is the sign for God's people. That something is about to happen. Today I want to talk to you about the final deception. And I want you to know that at the very end of time, after the Sunday law is enacted, there is going to be a measure of deception that we have not hitherto witnessed in this time. Now I want to be, I want to be clear 
Satan is doing what he can to deceive people right now. Does that make sense? Satan is deceiving people every day. Make no mistake. But when the Sunday law is announced, there is going to be an unleashing of Satan's ability to deceive on a level that we have not seen. And one of the key things that Satan will do at this, at this time is he is going to impersonate the second coming of Jesus. Of who? Of Jesus. Now, folks, if you're a Seventh-day Adventist, if you're a Bible student, you know that Jesus promised his disciples, if I go, I will come again. Amen? And as Christians, as Seventh-day Adventists, we are looking, anticipating the return of Jesus. And Satan knows this. And Scripture tells us that there is coming a time when Satan will work, and I want you to look at verse 9 again, with all power and signs and what else? Lying wonders. Now, I want to be careful because I want you to understand what we're reading. Scripture is talking, in the previous two verses, is talking about the Antichrist power. That's verse 7 and 8. But as it talks about the Antichrist power in verse 7 and 8, in verse 9, it compares their deceptive power to the ultimate working of Satan when Satan is allowed to work with all, all power, signs, and lying wonders. I want you to know that there is something that Satan cannot impersonate. First of all, if you're a Bible student, you will know this. That the Bible says that the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then, now notice, then we which are alive and remain, amen, I hope that's us, amen, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord, where? In the air. Point number one, you know that Jesus has come because not only will the dead be raised, but the righteous and the resurrected saints will be caught to meet Jesus where? In the air. Now, I want to tell you that when Satan impersonates Christ, he will not be able to replicate this part. There will be a being that walks around on the earth, and he's going to do miracles, folks. He will do miracles, and he will claim to be Christ. Are you with me? I want to read something to you because I want you to understand, I want you to understand what level of deception he is going to bring. I want, this is from a book called Early Writings. I'm reading from page 87, but this is what it says. Satan will have power to bring before us the appearance of forms purporting to be our relatives or friends now sleeping in Jesus. Did you catch that? How many of you have someone in the grave that you love very much? Oh, I think, I mean, I, you know, everybody I think has someone, right? 
Do you understand that when Jesus comes, the Bible tells us that the dead in Christ will rise. Does that make sense? Guess what? Satan knows that. And we are told that when Satan impersonates Christ, he will use dead loved ones to try to deceive God's people. Now, I want you to think about this just for a moment. Let's say you're a Christian. You come to church every week. Let's say that you've read your Bible. And let's say that you've tried your best to live a good moral life. Now, there is a being on earth that's walking around claiming to be Jesus. And I want you to imagine for a moment that there is what appears to be a resurrection of your loved one, and it just doesn't look like them. I want to read something to you from the same book. Please listen carefully. It will be made to appear as if these friends were present. The words that they uttered while here, which were familiar, will be spoken, and the same tone of voice that they had while living will fall upon the ear. All this is to deceive the saints and ensnare them into the belief of this delusion. Did you catch that? In other words, it's not that they just look like, uh, look like the people that we love. It's not just that. Their voice will sound the same, and they will say things that you thought only that person could have written. Now, if you know your Bible well, you know that there are angels, good and evil, that are watching the fate of every human being on planet Earth. Does that make sense? It should not in any way surprise us that what we thought was a secret just between us and them could be known by another party. Does that make sense? That should not surprise us. But I want you to think about, I want you to think, the beauty of this deception, and, I, and I'm not praising what Satan is going to do, but I want you to catch the, the, how enticing this will be. You could be a Bible student. You could be a Christian. The problem is that when you see it, because you love that person while they were alive, your love for them makes you sympathetic to want that deception to be real. Does that make sense? And let me tell you, if there was ever a deception that could pull people away from the truth, it's one that uses someone that used to love that's now dead. Do you get that? That would be, because do you get this? Humanly speaking, we all want to see our loved ones that have passed to the grave. That's human nature. So Satan capitalizes on this facet of human nature, and there will be there will be spirits or apparitions or, or whatever you want to refer to it as, demons in human form that will impersonate loved ones. They will talk in the same tone. They will say things that we're familiar with in the same accent. But if you are a Bible student, you know what the Bible says. Ecclesiastes 9.5 says, for the dead know not how much, not anything. Jesus said the time is coming and now is when all that are in the Graves shall hear his voice. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Jesus said that the dead are in the, they're in the graves. They're in the graves awaiting one of two resurrections. Does that make sense? 
But do you understand that when you want, when you believe, when you, when you love someone, you're going to want to believe that it's true. Does that make sense? So that's not the only deception, though. I want to I read something else to you. This is from another book. This is from a book called The Great Controversy. Through the agency of spiritualism, miracles will be wrought. What will be wrought? Miracles. The sick will be healed, and many undeniable wonders will be performed. Now, I'm going to ask you this question, and I think you know the answer, but I just want to make sure. Are all miracles from God, yes or no? If you understand that, if you understand that not all miracles are from God, you are in the right path. Because there will be people that are going to make this assumption, oh, that person is sick and he got healed. That must be from God. Now, I want to tell you something. Does God still work miracles today for healing? Does he still do it? He does. But I want to give you something that you need to consider from the scripture. When you do a survey of all the miracles that Jesus did, not only did Jesus relieve physical suffering through healing and miracles, but Jesus always paired that with deliverance from sin. Are you with me? In other words, Jesus never worked a miracle just to satisfy someone's curiosity. He always worked a miracle to save the physical as well as the soul. Does that make sense? Which means that if someone is not interested or if someone has no desire to turn from sin and yet they get healed, you automatically know something is not right. Does that make sense? Now, I want to say this because when we think about what is going to come, I want you to, I'm going to give you a real-world scenario, okay? This is a real-world scenario. Here's a woman, and she's struggling with a chronic illness. You name it, Lyme's disease, I don't know, fibromyalgia, whatever you want to call it. And they've been to doctors, and I picked those because those are two that seem incurable, okay? But let's say, you know, they, these are, you know, these chronic illnesses, and they've just lost their whole life. Maybe because of the sickness, they lost their job. Maybe they got divorced. Here they are just barely making it through life, and they've prayed, and they even asked the pastor when the elders to anoint them. Now, just watch, just watch. So, and they didn't get better, and they're struggling through this illness, and then one day, a flyer comes in the mail, and the flyer says, come to so-and-so stadium because there is going to be a healing ceremony that's going to be performed, and it is guaranteed that whatever you are struggling with, you can be healed. Remember what I said. When Jesus performed healing, it was always paired with a desire to deliver the person from sin. Does that make sense? And you know what? If the person didn't have that desire, they wouldn't get healed. I want you to, be, I want you to think about this. Here's a person now. They're a good Christian. They've struggled so long. By the way, I, I want to I ask you this question. Does God have a purpose in suffering, yes or no? Does he? Yeah. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but there is a famous apostle in the Bible 
who had a major health issue. Paul, did you know that? Paul had a major, you know what it was? There's a debate over this, but many scholars believe that Paul became basically blind. Remember on the road to Damascus? Remember what happened? He saw this bright light, right? Scholars say, and you know, there's some clues in his writings because he said, you would have plucked your own eyes out and given them to me. So there's some clues that he really struggled. And remember back then, they didn't have no like canes or, or you know, like there was none of that. There was no, there was no, you know, support animal. Paul had to struggle. And you know something? Paul asked God to deliver him from that particular illness. And you know how many times he prayed? He prayed over and over and over. And you know what? You know what God did for that prayer? Nothing. Yeah. And, and I want you to think about this. Some of you are scratching your head like Paul was a saint, was he not? He, Paul even performed miracles. Some of you are probably thinking, why didn't he do one on himself, you know? But Paul did all of these things. And you're asking yourself, why wouldn't God heal Paul? And the reason is this. God knew that if Paul didn't have what Paul refers to as this thorn in the flesh, he would get too proud and he would ultimately have been lost. Some of you are sitting here like, how come God can't heal me? How come God can't fix my financial situation? How come God can't fix this particular problem? Let me tell you, the answer to that is very simple. In every case, God knows if everything went well with that person, their own soul might be lost in the process. Does that make sense? So I want back to this miracles. So here's this person. They've str struggled with Lyme disease, uh, you know, all these diseases, Crohn's disease, fibromyalgia, whatever. And now there's this advertisement, hey, Everyone guaranteed to be healed. And they go, and they get healed. I want you to think, would that be a persuasive form of deception, yes or no? Oh, yeah. Make no mistake. There will be good, earnest Christians that are thinking that this is a good thing. And, folks, I want to just make this clear. If you understand right now, that not every miracle has divine origin, you are already on the right path to not being deceived. Does that make sense? I want you to look with me at 2 Thessalonians, if you would. I want to ask you to look with me at verse 10. We're going to read two verses, 10 and 11. Look closely. Here's what it says. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness, in them that perish, because they received not the love of the what? Of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a what? Now, this is a very perplexing passage of Scripture. I know that some of you are looking at this and kind of scratching your head like, wait, did I read that right? The Bible says that at the end of time, there are going to be people that will be deceived. And this is my second point. Why are they deceived? Look at verse 10 again. The last part says, because they received not the what? The love of the truth. Now, this is important. I want to emphasize something here. These people, they already know the truth. That's assumed in the verse. That's inferred. 
Does that make sense? And that's why the Bible says, it doesn't say they're deceived because they didn't have the truth. That's not what it says. It says they're deceived because they received not a what? A love for the truth. There's a huge difference. Huge difference. I want to illustrate this for you. If you love something or someone, does it make sense that you delight, you enjoy that thing or that person? Does that make sense? If you love something, you, you delight to spend time with that person. Have any of you ever found yourself checking your watch on a Saturday like, when does the sun go down? <laughs> what, what? Oh, when does the app say the sun goes down? Okay. Because I, I've struggled with this when I was a teen. It's like, okay, when does the sun go down? Because I want to watch TV. When does the sun go down? And do you understand this? When you love a when you keep the Sabbath, you might say, okay, I'm not going to work from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. And you know what? If you make that commitment, God bless you. Amen? But don't miss this. It's one thing to know the truth. It's different to love the truth. Because when you love the truth, you're not like, oh, I hate that color. You know, you're not like that. You're saying, this is my time to rest in you. I want to ask you to turn to the book of Isaiah. I, I want to ask you to turn there. Isaiah chapter 53. I want to show you a beautiful passage. Isaiah 53. Keep your finger in 2 Thessalonians if you can, because I'm going to come back. Look at Isaiah 58, verse 13. I want you to look at this verse, okay? Here's what it says. Isaiah 58, verse 13. Here's what it says. It says, if thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath. Now, let me explain this language to you because this might sound so odd. You know, in Oriental culture, the foot was considered the dirtiest part of the body. If you go to Asia, like even the Far East, not just the Middle East, but even the Far East, it's still that way. I don't know if you know this, but like in some cultures, like did you know that in Thailand, you can never show someone the bottom of your foot. That's like, that's like a, a huge impropriety, okay? That's how, okay, so now you understand the context of this. So it's saying, if you don't defile the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words. Verse 14 says, then shalt thou, what? Delight thyself in the Lord. Now, let me explain what we've just read. The Bible says, if you keep the Sabbath holy, you will learn to enjoy God's presence. And I want to challenge you because, see, when we struggle to love the truth, it's really because we don't love Jesus. Does that make sense? I want you to think about this. Jesus is the truth. Does that make sense? And so really, when you struggle to, to obey the truth, it's because you don't really love it. And if you loved it, 
you would delight to do it. And this is the experience that the Bible is describing here. You know, I'll give you an example from our everyday life. If you look longingly at your neighbor's pepperoni pizza and just wish that you could just blink and enjoy yourself, do you realize, do you realize that God gives us principles of truth for our own benefit? Does that make sense? It's for your own good. But you don't love the truth when you're just like, oh, I wish I could, you know. And, and this is what the experience that I'm trying to say. You could know what's right. But if you don't love the truth, when deception comes, you're going to get swept away. I want to ask you to look with me back at 2 Thessalonians. <clears throat> Our final point today. 2 Thessalonians, I want to ask you to look with me at verse 11. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Now look closely. It does not say that God will deceive them. Did you notice? It doesn't say that. What does it say? That God shall what? Send them. So it's not God that's doing the deceiving. It's still Satan that's doing the deceiving, but God allows it. Now, we already covered why he allows it. There's people that don't love the truth. They know the truth, but they don't love it. But I want you to notice that in verse 11, the Bible describes a group of people who believe a what? They believe a lie. Do you know that at the end of time, everybody is going to be fully persuaded? Some people are going to be fully persuaded to believe a lie. Other people will be fully persuaded to believe the truth. And what will make the difference is what you are doing right now. Let me explain this. Notice, I didn't say what you believe is what's going to make. I didn't say that. I said what you are doing right now will make the difference. Let me explain. You see, when you want to know what someone believes, you don't have to ask them, what do you believe? You just have to watch what they do. Because a theologian by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he succinctly summarized this concept. He said, if you believe, you will do. And if you do, it's because you believe. And I want you to know this. Every day as you do what you do, you are becoming and your character is becoming more and more ingrained in that belief. Does that make sense? So let me give you an example. If you come to church each week, you are stating by your actions. I believe that the seventh day is the Sabbath and that on that day, we should worship. Does that make sense? 
Because you are, by your actions, you are showing what you believe. If you are spending hours and hours on TV, does it make sense that you are saying, I believe that it's good or it's okay for God's people to spend hours and hours watching TV? Do you get that? Because what you do is a statement of your own belief. If you don't have family worship, you are in essence saying that I believe that it's not important to have family worship. And why am I saying this? Because at the end of time, the whole world becomes polarized into two categories of people. And one group, uh, by the way, both groups, they're fully persuaded and they're not going to change. I want to ask you, and don't, don't respond. This is rhetorical. Have you ever met a staunch, I mean a staunch Democrat? Or have you ever met a staunch, staunch Republican? Have you ever noticed that no matter where, what you say to them, you're not going to convince them otherwise of where they stand? Do you, do you get that? By the way, I, I'm not giving general advice, but I, I have stopped arguing with people about politics. You know why? Because there's no end in sight. You know what I'm saying? I don't want to talk about politics. But my point is this. On the subject, on a subject like politics, we can already see that when people are fully persuaded, no matter what happens, it's almost impossible to convince them otherwise, even if they're wrong. Do you see that? Guess what? That's going to happen about truth at the end of time. At the end of time, there will be people that are fully persuaded of something, but unfortunately, they are wrong. I want to challenge every one of us in here today to take inventory of your life. If you knew that deception was coming, what would you do? If you knew that the dead would appear to be raised and speak to you, if you knew that was coming, how would you prepare? If you knew that knowing the truth is not enough, but that you have to love the truth, what changes would you make in your life today? I was so encouraged by what Dick shared with us during the prayer time. It's not just him, all of us, every one of us, we struggle with things in our life. Amen? By God's help, we can be prepared for what's coming, but only if we surrender and give ourselves fully to God today. Amen? I want to invite you to bow your heads with me as we close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Sabbath. Thank you for each one that's here today. Father, we know, Scripture tells us that there are great deceptions that are coming down the pipeline. There's miracles. There's going to be healings. There's going to be seemingly resurrections from the dead. And in the midst of all of this, may we, not through our own intellect, but may we through the Scripture and our diligent study of it, find refuge in the blowing of all of these deceptions and winds of doctrine. 
This is my prayer for each one here today. In Jesus' name we pray.